We all hate injustice, don't we? We hate the idea that powerful people get to abuse their power at the expense of the weak and the defenceless. Uh, And that's when we especially hate the powerful, if you like, when they abuse the weak, when they abuse the defenceless person to get what they want. If Australia had a national movie, it would probably be The Castle. Uh, apparently you can even study it in uh, English in high school now so you know you've got Shakespeare on the one hand or Daryl Kerrigan on the other hand Uh, but anyway if you haven't seen it it's the story of a big business conglomerate that hand in hand with the government takes away the little Aussie battlers home uh, just so that they can make more money from their airport Uh, and the movie captures it wonderfully Daryl Kerrigan captures it when he says it's just not right it's not fair you see What does a government do at its best? I'm not talking about your individual politics at this point. What does a government do universally that makes a good government? Well, a good government brings justice for all uh, without fear or favour. Isn't that right? So on the one hand, a good leader doesn't let the powerful get away with things. That's the first part of good government. They enforce justice on the wealthy. They enforce justice on the powerful. But on the other hand... They protect the weak. They protect the defenceless. But bad government, bad government at its worst, is the opposite of that. Bad leadership lets the wealthy person get away with things, lets the powerful person, the influential person get away with things while it steals from and abuses the weak and the unprotected. And sadly, we see that all too often in our world. We see dictators, we see regimes growing wealthier and wealthier, giving jobs and contracts to their friends and and their family, funneling money off into Swiss bank accounts, while then stealing from the poor and the defenceless in their own countries. Friends to the powerful, abusive to the weak. Well, in these last three chapters of 1 Kings, we get these three episodes about King Ahab last week, this week, and then another one next week. And what we see is that Ahab's title as Israel's worst king was well earned. Last week in chapter 20, he showed actually the first part of bad leadership. The the way he, instead of bringing justice to the evil but powerful king Ben-Hadad of Aram, he strikes a deal with him. A deal that just happened to make Ahab rich as well, but a deal that was actually going to have devastating consequences for the people of Israel in the longer term. But this week, we see that other side of bad leadership. We see the way Ahab abuses his power for his own gain, and in particular, takes advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. But as we look at it, I hope we don't just sort of stand in judgment over Ahab and sort of say, oh, what a horrible person he is, because I actually think there's a lot to learn about ourselves in this story. So let's get into it. The first heading, Ahab's evil injustice. This is verses 1 to 16 that Olivia read for us a moment ago. So some time has passed since the battles we saw in last week's chapter, and we're told that Ahab was at his palace in Jezreel. Now, even that is a hint about how bad Ahab is and what's going to come, because, (coughs) excuse me, he would have ruled from Samaria and had a palace there as well. So already you see, he's not lacking in real estate. He's not in need of extra property. But Ahab looks out and he sees this lovely vineyard through the window next door, but it's not his. It belongs to a fellow called Naboth, a local from Jezreel. So Ahab makes Naboth an offer which seems pretty fair. Look at verse 2. 
says, So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard so I can have it for a vegetable garden, since it is right next to my palace. I will give you a better vineyard in its place, or if you prefer, I'll give you its value in silver. That seems fair enough. That happens every day in Sydney, real estate transactions like that. You can't blame a guy for making an offer, for asking. But Naboth isn't interested. And interestingly, he doesn't just say, Thanks, Ahab, but I I don't really feel like it at the moment. I I like my vineyard. I'm not ready to sell. No, no, no. Naboth's answer is actually theological. And it's much stronger than our English makes it sound. Look at verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, I will never give my father's inheritance to you. The strength of that is actually like heaven forbid that I should ever do this, Ahab. Now, why is he so strong and why in particular does he use that language about his father's inheritance? We see it's not just that Naboth really likes his vineyard. Naboth understands God's law. It seems that he is one of those 7,000 faithful Israelites that God said still exist when he told Elijah it's worth it. There's still 7,000 people trusting me. You see, Naboth would have been thinking about passages like Leviticus 25 and Numbers 36. You can read those later on if you're interested. But God's law in passages like that makes it clear that an Israelite's land was not their own. It was an inheritance from God. The land of Israel was God's gift and it was a portion to each tribe and to each family. So it wasn't yours to buy or to sell. You could sell it if you were absolutely desperate, but only then to another Israelite. And even then, it was meant to revert back to your family every few years. You see, an Israelite's connection to their parcel of land, their portion of the promised land, was actually a connection to God's promises. See, I think Naboth is just doing what any godly Israelite would do at this point. He's politely but firmly saying, no, I can't do this. Unlike Ahab, who doesn't care about God's law and so I love verse 4 because Ahab acts like a petulant child look look there it says so Ahab went to his palace resentful and angry because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had told him he had said I'll not give you my father's inheritance and this is the bit I love he lay down on his bed turned his face away and didn't eat any food I just love that verse it's like having a temper tantrum so like my kids did when they were five years old So, so at this point Ahab is selfish Ahab is a brat But it gets worse because our favorite queen, Jezebel, she wants to know what's wrong. And Ahab tells her, he says, Naboth won't sell me the vineyard I want. You can imagine him stamping his foot as he says it to her. And Jezebel can't believe it. But she's not frustrated with Naboth so much as she is with Ahab. Look at verse 7. Then his wife Jezebel said to him, now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food and be happy for I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now again, I don't think our English translations quite capture her exasperation here. She's exasperated with Ahab. Are you the king or are you not? If you're the king, go and get what you want. You see, that is what her dad, the the king of Baal country would do. That's what any good pagan king like Ben-Hadad, who we met last week, would do. What use is there being king if you can't get the vineyard you like the look of? But of course, the thing is, kings of Israel were not meant to be like the pagan kings. A king of Israel was meant to lead under God, 
for the good of the people not for their own benefit a king of Israel was meant to be subject to God's word in God's word in the scriptures and from the prophets like Elijah Yahweh was the real king of Israel the good kings of Israel understood that David understood that he was only the king under the true king Yahweh but Jezebel doesn't care about any of that so she concocts a scheme she uses Ahab's seal so that it was official letters to set up a sting operation she sets up people to make false accusations against Naboth ironically she accuses Naboth of blasphemy against Yahweh I say ironically because if you remember she's the person who's been setting up idols of Baal all around the countryside but her plan works but don't just blame Jezebel by the way for her to use Ahab's seal, that meant Ahab knew what was going on. Ahab is just as guilty as Jezebel here. In fact, I think he's worse because she is evil, but he is evil and weak at the same time. And the leaders of Israel, they would have known what it was all about. They would have known what was going on. They knew it was lies. They're not innocent. It takes real strength. It takes real godliness to stand up and be counted, even when you know you're going to pay the cost. And they didn't have that strength. They didn't have that godliness. And so Naboth gets stoned to death. Later on in 2 Kings, which we're going to look at next year, in 2 Kings, it makes it clear that Naboth's whole family was actually killed so that no one could question Ahab's right to the vineyard. And so Ahab, without it costing him a thing, in the end he didn't pay anything for it, without even getting his own hands dirty, gets what he wants. He gets his vineyard. But before we go on to the rest of the story, I want to draw out an important point from Naboth's horrible situation. And that is that Naboth's experience is the sad reality of living in this fallen world. The reality is that evil and injustice will happen in our fallen, broken world until Christ returns. That's why this story doesn't surprise us very much. We say, yeah, we see things like that all the time in our world. And so if it happens to us, don't be surprised by it. Don't be rocked by it. And more than that, being faithful to God like Naboth was, that doesn't protect you from this. If anything, it adds to it. Jesus promised us that we would face persecution for following him, including sometimes from governments like this was. Just remember, it wasn't a mob that killed Naboth. It was the government of the day. It wasn't mobs who put Jesus to death. It was the government of that day. It wasn't just mobs who attacked the apostles, though they did sometimes. No, it was the government of the day that forbade them to preach the gospel. I don't have to tell you that we live in an unusual period of history and even an unusual part of our world today. In many parts of the world, even today, Christians are persecuted for preaching the gospel, for just claiming the name of Jesus. We have lived in a period where Western governments have been friendly to Christian views, and if not supported them, they've at least allowed the gospel, allowed God's word to be taught freely. I don't need to tell you that there is every chance that those times will change. We are entering a period where Christian views on many areas will not be tolerated. I mean, sexual ethics is the obvious example at the moment, where fairly soon they'll say, you can't preach that view. Or even worse than that, you can't hold that view. 
if you want to work here or if you want to study here. We mustn't be surprised. We mustn't let our faith be rocked if that time comes. I think 1 Peter chapter 4 is a wonderful key passage on this. I love it. Just look at how he puts it in verse 14. He says, If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't be surprised if you face persecution for your faith. Don't be surprised if people ridicule you for your Christian faith. Don't be rocked by it. But there's no honour for suffering because you break the law. There's no honour for suffering because you're a gossip, because you're dishonest, because you're not very nice. No, but to stand up and face ridicule or even persecution for the name of Jesus because you're a Christian, isn't that an honour? Isn't that actually a joy? Doesn't that say, I am proud to stand with my Lord and my Saviour? And of course, if we are ever tempted to lose heart, we should remember that we never suffer anything that our Lord Jesus didn't suffer first. As I read Naboth's story, I actually couldn't help but think of Jesus. Naboth, what happened to Naboth is exactly what happened to Jesus, isn't it? Falsely accused, a sham trial, and then they drum up two false witnesses to testify against him. That's exactly what happened to Christ. Whatever we suffer... We have a Lord who can empathise with us in that suffering, which I think is just the most wonderful comfort. But back to our story. Ahab and Jezebel think they've got away with it. They think no one knows about their murder, no one knows about their theft, or at least no one who has the guts to do anything about it knows. But someone could see the one who sees all things, which brings us to our second heading, which is God brings justice. And this is verses 17 to 24 that we didn't read before, so you'll need to follow along. I love the way here you've got Ahab and Jezebel going down to take possession of, of the vineyard. Then just out of the blue, it says, look at verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And if you have read the 21 chapters of one king so far, you are meant to have a bit of a smile at that point. You're meant to have a bit of a laugh because whenever the word of the Lord comes to Elijah the Tishbite, you know there's going to be fireworks. You know the truth is going to come out. You know he's not going to stay quiet. And God says, Elijah, you go and tell Ahab, look at verse 19, tell him this is what the Lord says. Have you murdered and also taken possession? Then tell him. This is what the Lord says, in the place where the dogs licked Naboth's blood, the dogs will also lick your blood. It's chilling. Ahab, you are going to die for what you did to this man. This is a promise of God's judgment, not his general judgment, but his specific judgment on Ahab. I also love in this little section the personal nature of this. Look at verse 20 where it says, Ahab said to Elijah, so you have caught me, my enemy. You see, he and Elijah are like Darth Vader and Obi-Wan in Star Wars, or if you're a bit more highbrow, like Moriarty to Sherlock Holmes in the old novels. His nemesis has caught him. He doesn't try to hide from it. He doesn't try to justify it. He just says, you've got me. And God's judgment is promised not just on Ahab, just in case you're worried Jezebel gets away with it. She is going to be judged in exactly the same way as well. And in fact, all of Ahab's line will be judged. 
Just like Jeroboam's line came to an end because of their sin, just like Bashar's line came to an end because of their sin, if you remember in the earlier chapters, well now, so will Ahab's line because of his evil. God will bring justice on Ahab and Jezebel. God will avenge Naboth's blood. And that's the point to see here. We said before that suffering is a part of living in this fallen and broken world and we saw that injustices will happen. That's just a reality of this life. But ultimately, when Christ returns, he will bring justice for all. But especially, he will bring justice for those who have suffered for his name. We read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as our New Testament reading before. Paul was writing to a church that was suffering for their faith. And look at the comfort he gives from verse 4. He says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you also are suffering. And now look at verse 6. Since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. See the point Paul is promising the Thessalonians there is yes it seems like the Ahabs of this world are getting away with it all too often but not forever. They will not get away with it forever. When Christ returns, he will judge the Ahabs and the Jezebels of this world. And he will comfort the Naboths. As he will comfort anyone who has suffered because they love Jesus. Now the cynic might look at this story and they might say, well that's all well and good, but why didn't God step in before Naboth? got put to death why didn't he send Elijah before it happened why does God delay his justice it's a great question and the thing is we don't always know the answer why did God keep Elijah safe but not Naboth going back to other parts of the Old Testament why did God keep Moses safe but not the other Israelite children we do not know all the answers but we do know this we know that Naboth does not miss out because as one of God's children, he got to go to be with the Lord. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, if you are a Christian, whether you live or die, you win. Whether you live or die, you win, because you get to go to be with Jesus. And more than that, what we look forward to with Jesus, the salvation you look forward to if you trust in Christ, makes even the worst suffering pale in comparison. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, as he was threatened with death for preaching the gospel. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In the end, that is the answer that God gives to our questions. What we look forward to, nothing is worth comparing to the glory that we will see when Christ returns. Back to our passage though, for our final scene and my third heading, God prefers grace and mercy. And this is verses 25 to 29. Ahab really is the ultimate sinner of the Old Testament. 
It says it there in verses 25 and 26. Look there with me. It says, There was no one like Ahab who devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight. See, we're all sinners. He's saying Ahab devoted himself to sin. He devoted himself to doing the opposite of everything God wanted. It's a massively condemning thing to say about Ahab, which is what makes what happens next so amazing. Because Ahab repents. It's like Elijah finally gets through to him. You can imagine Elijah nearly falls over with the shock of it. Look at verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put sackcloth over his body and fasted. He lay down in sackcloth and walked around subdued. Now now the cynic in us immediately doubts Ahab's sincerity, don't we? You can't help it. We say, can a leopard really change his spots? But remember when we do that, we forget that we too were all sinners like Ahab. We came to repentance. When we doubt someone else's repentance and faith, who are we to do that? The Apostle Paul called himself the worst of sinners, yet he found forgiveness in Christ. Don't be too quick to be cynical. Because the thing is, God is not cynical. And I love these verses because you can almost hear the excitement in God's voice as he speaks to Elijah. Look at verse 28. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I will not bring the disaster during his lifetime because he has humbled himself before me. I will bring the disaster on his house during his son's lifetime. Amazingly, because of Ahab's repentance, God relents. So what are we to make of this? A couple of points. Firstly, notice that God only delays his judgment on Ahab. He doesn't remove it. Justice will still happen. Sometimes God does that. He holds off his judgment in response to people's repentance. Like Nineveh, when Jonah preached to that great city. In the same way, God holds off judgment on our world now. Wanting more people to repent, more people to find salvation. Secondly, it's true that Ahab's repentance does not seem to last. You only have to read into next week's passage to see this. It seems though that it was genuine at this point because you can't pull the wool over God's eyes. But fairly soon he goes back to his old ways and he didn't give the vineyard back, which is telling. So Ahab's repentance was not a once for all turning back to God. I do not think Ahab will be in heaven with Naboth and with Elijah and with anyone else who claims the name of Jesus but even so this little moment gives you a wonderful insight into our God and that insight is that God longs to show grace God longs to show mercy far more than he longs to judge see if even this half-hearted repentance leads to God deferring his judgment holding off his judgment how much more does God long for people to genuinely turn to him in lasting faith and lasting repentance so you remember this this is the God we worship the God of justice yes and that is important but he is also the God who loves to show mercy Look at what God says through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33 verse 11. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. 
God longs to forgive. I'll look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, it is because God desires mercy more than judgment that this time we live in even exists. If God just wanted to bring justice, he would have just brought judgment on our world and everyone would have got, including us, what we deserve. But instead, God desires mercy. And so this time exists. God is patient so that all people might have the chance to turn to Jesus and find salvation. God even wanted Ahab to have that chance. That is the God we worship. That's the God we meet in our Lord Jesus how great and how merciful and how wonderful is our God. Amen.